Thanks for joining us today for this stellar episode of the Rehumanize podcast. This episode comes on the heels of National Adoption Month, which has its own share of controversy and big feelings surrounding it, particularly within the adoptee community. My name's Amy Murphy, and I'm the founder and an interim executive director of Rehumanize International. Today on the Rehumanize podcast, we are going to break open the three things that one adoptee wishes everyone knew about adoption. This is a particularly important conversation for pro-life folks to listen to. So I hope that you'll tune in and share with your friends. Our guest today is one of my dearest friends, my housemate and chosen family, Sarah Loroff. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Amy. It's good to be here. So first, I want to give you the opportunity to share your story as an adoptee, um, particularly a transnational adoptee. Um, Just, yeah, just share a little bit about who you are and your story around this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Wuzhou, China. Uh, which is a city in the province of Guangxi. Um, I was born in 1998 and I was adopted in 1999 um, to two lovely parents. Uh, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and we I actually am one of two adoptees in my family. So the other one, um, is my younger sister, Hannah, who came from the Hunan province of China. So both of my parents have only had adopted children. They uh, don't have any biological kids, um, and that is due to um, infertility on their end. And that has certainly created a very, I think, interesting dynamic uh, with our family and it's made a very unique family and I'm excited to share more about that throughout this podcast. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Um, It means so much to me that you're willing to talk about this and get into the heavy stuff today for this important conversation. Adoption is thrown around a lot, both to infertile couples. um, You know, I am half of one myself and we'll hear things like, oh, you should just adopt. And, you know, to people who are experiencing difficult or unplanned pregnancies, they might often hear, oh, you should just place the baby for adoption. I want to scream when I hear things like that. There's no situation in which an adoptive or birth parent just chooses adoption so nonchalantly. So I'm grateful you're here today to help us talk about this topic and really break it open for the hard conversations. So what do you wish people, particularly those who are pro-life, knew about adoption? That's a really, really good question. I think very important for all people who are considering adopting or have already adopted, right, and are um, on this journey for the long run because, you know, it's this lifelong commitment. So the first thing I, I think I wish everyone knew is that adoption is is not about adults acquiring children, right? It isn't 
a replacement for genetic or biological children and no one like deserves to have children. So even if they are going through the pain of infertility, um, in, instead, I think shifting our point of view to seeing adoption as providing a family and a safe home and care for children who have been through this very significant trauma, I think opens up, I think opens up the vulnerabilities that are present for both the parents and the children and allow those to be a part of the story rather than just having it be this black and white narrative. And as many things have been turned into, right? But just giving ourselves more space to have those emotions that we've always had. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. This this gets to a point that I think is particularly relevant for me too, kind of on the other end of things. Our listeners might know that um, you know, I've been on this infertility journey through the slog of infertility for over 11 and a half years at this point. And it's been hell, you know, if I'm going to be totally honest. And as I've spoken with some adoptees, they reminded me of a really heavy and vital thing for folks like me to remember that the trauma of infertility can be deep and difficult to heal. And it's not really something that our culture is oriented to. Um, but it is our responsibility, you know, as as the adults to be on that healing journey through therapy and mindfulness, um, because if we want to work towards adoption, we need to recognize that we don't deserve a child, that it's not about us in the end, and that adoption isn't about our desires as adults, that we need to be able to heal that trauma. Um, so I guess... I would love for you to share with me what your thoughts are on how we could address the commoditization of children that so often happens in adoption, um, particularly in the United States in the last you know century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a hard question to address, and I think a lot of something that not a lot of people are aware of. Right, it's still. Um, a story we're trying to share with with people who you know have grown up with that very with the very basic narrative that that we've been talking about. Um, I think it all comes down to it comes down to your inner motivations and and your heart. And I'm probably going to say that for a lot of these questions because that is such an important thing when you're about to do when you're about to take on something as complex and nuances adoption is really asking yourself like what am i what am i doing this for why am i wanting to adopt is it because i am trying to fulfill this dream that i have or go or continue on this path that i have you know laid out for myself that i have this very strong dedication to and not that any of that is a bad thing right like it's totally fine to have that desire for for children and to raise a family i don't think there's anything wrong with that it's 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 about um it's it's about letting yourself be open to the possibility that maybe that's not going to happen right and being able to 
I guess, relinquish some of that, some of that desire and, and let, and let the desires of all the other people involved, like be a part of, of what you're wanting and really collaborating with, with those around you and kind of making this sort of like this new vision or this new dream of like, how can we, as of a collective people, however you, whoever you're deciding to adopt with, like, how can we make this a place where, where everybody's story is welcome and heard. And it's not just about me and what I want. Yeah. I think you put that really beautifully. Um, One of the things that comes to my mind, of course, is, um, you know, people who adopt um, or even, you know, have children in the first place because they think that it's, it's just the thing to do. It's the next step in their life. Um, And they have this vision of what their children are going to be or really like should be like. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, I think that view is one that can really um, commoditize children and therefore like harm them in a further way. Um, and one of the things that, uh, we have gone through in our, um, adoption processes like orientations and whatnot with foster agencies and with adoption agencies. And we've been in the room while other people state, you know, oh, well, I, I only want to adopt a white baby, or I only want to adopt a boy child, or I only want to, um, you know, open my home to a baby that, quote unquote, doesn't have any damage or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a non-disabled child. And it's been really interesting to go through, you know, the orientation process with these agencies as they ask us, well, do you have any preferences? And we're like, whoa, that's not the right way to think about humans. Humans come with their own stuff, with their own traits and their own identity and their own baggage. And we should just be here, um, you know, as adults to just welcome them, to to walk with them on their journey. Um, and I think so that, you know, this really requires a whole reorientation of our society to not see children as commodities to fulfill our desires, but as whole tiny humans who have their own beautiful lives that we have the gift and the opportunity uh, to walk with them on. Um, so yeah, you, you put it so beautifully though, that like we really do, like we, we want to be able to welcome everyone's story. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so the next thing I want to want to ask, because you mentioned that adoption is about providing a family, a safe home and care for children who have been through significant trauma. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to try to speak for all adoptees out there, right? But um, I can share my own experience of how adoption has affected me, particularly in my adult life. And obviously I'm, I'm still on the journey of unraveling a lot of that and figuring out how is, how pinpointing exactly how that's affected me. Um, 
And so I think part of one of the biggest themes, I think, in the trauma that I have um, experienced has been, am I really wanted, right? Like, am I wanted by the people that have adopted me? Was I wanted by, you know, the parents who relinquished me from their care like a very central thing to human identity is is asking yourself like am i wanted here and am i needed like on this earth do i have a purpose and so part of providing family and care and a safe home i think really communicates to people that they do have value and that they are worth caring for and that they are wanted and that's if anything, the biggest takeaway that I think an adoptee, or the biggest, yeah, and the biggest, sorry, the biggest takeaway that an adoptee could have from being a part of of a family is is getting a chance to feel that, um, to feel that intrinsic value that they have, and to be in in touch with that. I you mentioned earlier about just really rehumanizing and giving this recognizing the the intrinsic value that humans have and I think that adoption is a very unique opportunity to do that because you are literally taking in these children that are not biologically related to you. They are a whole other person with a whole other story and things that you will probably never know about. And so, yeah, I think it's just a very, it's an opportunity to really put into practice. Like this is someone who I'm in their life and I'm caring for them and I'm raising them and they're going to go off into the world and they're going to do their own thing. And I might not be there. And I have to be okay with that, right? Like it's it's not about holding on to and built and trying to build like this perfect family that you're never going to let go. It's about doing doing what we can and with what we've been given, um, and then letting them pass that on to whoever they decide to make their family or their community. Um, and I think that that's just having an open hand and open heart is really the best attitude uh, to have when you're approaching. Yes, yeah, so the second thing um, that I wish everyone knew about adoption is it always, it comes through and with trauma, whether through parental death, abuse, state custody, abandonment, or relinquishment, there's always immense pain and loss that precipitates the need for adoption, right? It's not, it's not the, it's not the ultimate and preferred way for children to have families. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you bring this up and um, we had 
uh, first mom, Mar- Marcia Lane McGee, speak at our conference um, back in November. And she mentioned this topic too, you know, that um, she is a birth mom. Um, and, I, you know, as, as, as a first mom and her son, um, you know, whom she placed for adoption over 20 years ago, have both, you know, that they, they've both experienced trauma um, through this process, even though there's also been so much love and so much opportunity for growth. Um, yeah, I think this is a really important thing for pro-lifers to understand that, um, that when they say adoption is a loving option, I think they're often presenting it as an alternative to abortion, which, well, I think that we can both agree that killing one's child in the womb is certainly not within the realm of loving. It really underestimates the amount of hurt and pain that are often involved with adoption too. Um, So I know this is a heavy, heavy question. So take your time. Um, And if you don't want to answer, that's okay. If you're just like, hey, no, this is not something I'm comfortable talking about. But I'm wondering, what does that trauma and loss involve for many adoptees? And if you're open to sharing, what has that loss looked like for you? Yeah, that's a really good question and a very important one too. I, I think from what I have heard from just listening to other adoptees and um, being a part of, of their lives, uh, there's a lot of this sort of like dual identity going on, right? Of, I don't feel like I'm wholly integrated in this family that I've been adopted to. And I'm not wholly part of the one that I was relinquished from. So I'm sort of just straddling this line in the middle. Um, And particularly for an international adoptee, right? Like that is much more prevalent, particularly because of the cultural differences. So for me, you know, being adopted from the other side of the planet, there's this part of me that doesn't feel like I'm Asian enough because I grew up in this very white Western culture. Um, But there's also a part of me that doesn't feel like I'm totally integrated in the Western white culture because I'm not, I just take one look in the mirror and I'm like, Oh, right. I'm not white. Um, (laughs) so, so yeah, there's just this, there's just this extra confusion and this, and this layer of questioning, like, where do I, where do I belong? Like, how do I, how do I be in the middle? Well, that's something that I've particularly been asking myself as I've, tried to delve more into learning about Chinese culture and just where I've, I've come from, like, how can I hold both of those well? And how can I, how can I be okay holding both of those well? Like I've, of course, I think ideally I'd love to just be one or the other, but I, for me and for all of us, like, that's just not the case. Like we weren't made to just, one thing or the other we were made to have all of these different facets of our personality and our you know our emotional being like all of these things that make us us um 
And I think because adoption has sort of like forced that on me, has forced that like dual identity on me, being okay with it is a really big part of the journey for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and has that has that added the added troubles of you can't be just one or the other. You mm-hmm. have to figure out how to be both. Yeah. The way that you put that, I think, is a really insightful way to really cover the ambiguous loss of one's culture um, and one's origin. Like, And that's something that I think even um, children or grandchildren of immigrants to the United States can relate to. Um, I know I, as a very white Latina, um, I have lost a lot of contact with my Mexican heritage. And so that is a very ambiguous loss. Like I don't know how to put a finger on. Um, But there are of course, like more, more precise losses. Um, And those are maybe the heavier things to think about. Um, Like the loss of a relationship with your first family um, like kind of makes you wonder, like, do you have siblings back in China? Um, you know, what are, what are your birth parents like? And that sort of thing. And those are very, very precise and sharp losses. And I know they're, they're harder to talk about. Um, so I appreciate you sharing. I know that it's probably ripe for dredging up a lot of feelings. Um, And I want to elaborate a little bit on this subject and mention what um, birth mothers and first moms like my friend Marcia have echoed time and again, that adoption isn't the solution to abortion. Resourcing families adequately is. Mm -hmm. So getting to this sort of more precise loss, have you ever wondered whether different circumstances surrounding your conception and your birth, like the location, the timing, the resources that your birth parents had, whether those things being different might have spared you from some of that loss, from some of that trauma. All the time. Yeah, that's that's something that I really can't help but think about when I when I think about my adoption. Um yeah, absolutely. There's so for those of you who, who may not know the um, part of the reason that I was, I did end up being adopted from China is because they placed their one child policy uh, back in 1979, which stated that you could only have one child and it was preferred that they be male because they can work and they can carry on the family name. And it's, that's just how the culture was and still, and still is. It's a, it's very, um, it's, it's very gender specific over there. Um, I have, yeah, asked myself like, oh, what if that didn't exist? What if that policy didn't exist? Like how many children would still be in China with their families? How many girls would, or how many families would have more than one daughter? 
um, his eye has changed since since then. I think in 2015 they decided to reel that back and made a two-child policy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is um, both you know 100% better and also not at all better <laughs> in some ways because like yes you know, you're allowing more children to, to live. Um, you know, there were a lot of children killed because of the um, one-child policy through abortion and through exposure. Um, and there were a lot of children, you know, uh, relinquished place for adoption um, in China during that time. And so I'm, I feel like there's probably going to be a little less of that now um, because of the, you know, expansion to a two-child policy. Um, but nonetheless, I do feel like it is still this grip of control that the state has and it can still lead to, um, things like coerced and forced abortions to, um, coerced and forced relinquishment of children. Like, I think until you have the opportunity to meet your birth family, like you will, you will never know, um, how badly they wanted you and like how, how they might've fought to keep you. And that's such a hard thing. And it it makes me angry at the Chinese government all the time. (laughs) So I don't know. Do you have like complicated feelings about that? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, And and like you mentioned it re just kind of rehashing that policy. It's, it's better, but it's not great. It's not ideal. It's still really far from ideal. Um, and yeah, while I have continuously and still do ask myself, like, oh, what if I had not been placed for adoption? What if I had been raised in my in my culture and I had learned the language? Um, that there is certainly, it, there's um, beauty within that situation. Um, on the other hand, I'm like, well, what if I had been aborted? What if I had been one of the one of the embryos that had undergone like forced sterilization? Because that was certainly something that happened to a lot of countless women. Um, and a really, placing for adoption was something that like had to be done in secret. Like it mm-hmm. had to be done away from like the family and from society like even knowing even the women knowing or women knowing that they were pregnant with females was already like a risk to their well-being and so it really was such this grueling task to be able to just put me up for adoption and that is something that I while angry about and so grateful for and I'm grateful that I am alive and here me too (laughs) me too uh guys when I tell you Sarah is one of my favorite humans uh please don't undercut that uh as just like me being soft like she really is and I'm so grateful that she's here today uh So, uh, oh my gosh, I just, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I know that of course, like the, the question of like resourcing, like how, like it, 
it really does get past um, this one child policy. But I, you know, it, all of this is complicated in in China um, because of their um, communist policies, which, uh, you know, that level of control, I think, um, has given the state this this sense of feeling entitled to control other people's reproduction. Um, and so part of me is like, oh, well, maybe, maybe if Sarah had been conceived and born in, um, you know, in another country, like what if you'd been conceived and born in the United States, if your parents had emigrated here, um, then you're facing a whole different slew of questions, which are, you know, what are the resources? What are the financial resources? And that's something that a lot of, um, you know, domestic, domestically um, born adoptees, um, I think, face that question of like, well, if my parents had just had, um, you know, a better job or secure housing or, um you know, an opportunity to get the the health care that they needed to be able to carry me to term confidently. Um, you know, what could that life have been like? Um, so I recognize that it is a little different between transnational and uh, domestic adoptees because the the policy situation is different in these circumstances. Um, I think one of the important things that Marcia has brought up and that, that you've really pointed to is that the policies that our government has really do influence the decisions that parents make uh, around reproduction, around uh, childbearing, around child rearing. Um, you know, all of these different decisions are impacted by whether or not a second child is allowed or a third child or whether or not parents have access to clean water and safe housing and a, a good job and health care and child care even. Um, so it's just something for, I think, pro-lifers to think about is what are the policy solutions that we are pointing to? Are we pointing towards a more laissez-faire idea where everyone is just on their own and, well, you know, we don't really care about the kids that are conceived in these bad circumstances? Or are we telling mothers in impoverished circumstances, oh, well, we don't really think that you're the best one to be raising this child. So we're going to be taking, you know, children from low-income communities, often of color, and basically you know, buying them from these low-income mothers by paying for their health care and giving them to high-income, often white families, um, which, you know, honestly, like in my view, that that essentially functions as a form of human trafficking. Um, and so, like, how are we responding to these situations of need? Are we saying, oh, we, we'll just take your child from you? You're not the best one to parent that child? Or are we resourcing these families 
and sparing them from the hurt and the pain and the trauma um, that often comes with adoption. All of this is also to like, not to mention instances of children um, who are placed in state custody, um, who are taken from homes where they're being neglected or abused. And the adoption in those cases is going to look different. And it is going to often come with a sense of um, relief for those children who are being moved to a safer home. Um, so it's like a whole different conversation. And maybe I need to have, you know, three different conversations on adoption with adoptees. Um, because now I'm like, oh, well, we have a transnational adoptee. We have, um, you know, foster adoptees. And we have domestic infant adoptees and all of those are going to come with their own different circumstances and different stories. So who knows? Maybe we're just breaking this conversation wide open. (laughs) Um, Anyway, thank you for sharing that. I know I've rambled on because I got so consumed with this idea um, about resourcing families, but what's the third thing that you'd like everyone to know about adoption? I wish everyone knew that it's so, so important to integrate the adoptee's background and culture into the life that they will have instead of forced assimilation into the predominant and often white culture. Yeah. What is that? I guess, um, (sighs) Maria, take out me fumbling over my words there. Yes, that point is so clutch. Whether we're talking about domestic infant adoption, transnational adoption, embryo adoption, or foster adoption, the value of connection to one's community of origin is so important. As I mentioned, um, you know, I can say this as someone who doesn't have much connection to my Mexican heritage as I'd like, you know, just purely from the consequences of casual white supremacy in our culture in the U.S., So I want to get into this more, but first I want to ask, um, can you just sum up real quick, how is transnational adoption different from domestic infant adoption and the other kinds of adoption? Well, transnational adoption is going to be, uh, you know, children who were adopted from other, other nations, other, other cultures, um, while domestic is going to be just here in in the U.S. Um, yeah, so we have sure. countries like uh, we've definitely seen. You know, a lot of Chinese adoptees, also Russian, yeah, Korean, um, a lot from Africa, Africa mm-hmm. yeah, um, and a lot from South America. Um, it's a definitely a, a spicy topic if you end up talking to um, transnational adoptee groups um yeah and uh, like is there an age difference that comes with that usually because i know like domestic adoption is often infant adoption because there are you know hundreds of thousands of couples waiting to adopt infants in the united Mm -hmm. states like on wait lists that are often years long um but what's you know so we see in the U.S. with domestic infant adoption, you know they're adopting babies usually sometimes right out of the hospital. What was that like for you? Like as a transnational adoptee, were you a baby? I was. I was just a year old, um, and I was living in an orphanage. 
uh, between the time that I was uh, put up for adoption and then when I was adopted. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that, you know, the foster system, you know, there are babies who are placed um, often because of things like, you know, drug abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also older children that are adopted from the foster system in the U.S. and a lot of older children that are waiting for families, um, you know, who who will age out of the system and won't have a family to go back to for things like the holidays, what we're coming up on very soon. Um, are there older children that are adopted transnationally as well? Um, it certainly there certainly are. Um, it's it's probably more it's you'll see more infants who are adopted from um from that are or sorry that are transnational adoptees uh it's just it's not as typical to see see older ones because if they if they are older they've likely you know gone to live with other family members and then if something happened there then then they may be placed in in the adoption agency Got it. Good to know. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit about those differences. Um, I think it's important for people to know a little bit more. Um, and of course, uh, I, for those who came to the Rehumanized Conference in November, you probably uh, heard about my talk uh, on embryo adoption. Um, so that's a journey that uh, I'm embarking on with my husband and our lovely housemates, Marianne and Sarah, um, who will all be helping to raise these embryos um, who have been stuck in freezers. You know, they're over, uh, the, the most recent numbers say over a million embryos are stuck in freezers in the United States alone. Yeah. Um, and over 400,000 are um, just, you know, waiting for families to return to them or um, place them for adoption. Um, so that's a you know a, a new horizon of adoption that's uh, you know coming out here. But um, again, the thing I, I just want to point back to is Sarah's remark. You know, adoption isn't about um, adults procuring children. Um, it's about adults opening their hearts and their homes, um, and in the case of embryo adoption, also their bodies. <laughs> to care for and love these children who are in need. So, um, yeah, again, just grateful that we could break open those different, those different kinds of adoption. So people know, um, so how has your experience as a transnational and transcultural adoptee shaped your life? You know, like what are, what are some experiences or touchstones that have helped um, in this journey and what do you think could have been done better? Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest question that has been asked so far. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that you said transnational and transcultural because those are two different things. Um, I, I think that there's, yeah, like there, while there's the cultural aspect, there's also just the geographical differences. I mean, it, it takes, what a 21 hour plane ride to get over, over wow. to China. It's a very long journey. Um, yeah. So some of the, some of the experiences, um, 
being transnational and transcultural, certainly, again, revolving a lot around my identity um, and how I, how I view myself. I used to, and still struggle with this, I used to really hate the way that I looked, particularly when I was a kid, because I didn't, I didn't have the typical white features, right? Like, and this this might sound a little odd, but hopefully some of you that are listening can relate to this. I always was jealous of people that had nose bridges because a lot of a lot of Asian features will typically include like a little bit of a flatter nose bridge. And maybe I was just more conscious of that because I had to wear glasses by like the first grade. So finding ones finding frames that could fit me well just made me extra aware of that. But yeah, it was, it was a hard, it was a hard time accepting and loving the way that I looked physically because there were just so many obvious differences. And, you know, a lot of my friends were white because that's like how I grew up. And those are the people that I grew you, up around. You grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Very Dutch. Very Dutch. Um, so that's been... As I said, that's something that I'm still working on to this day, like just taking some pride and joy in how I was created and how I look. And while that may seem kind of superficial and you'll always hear those people say that, you know, the way you look doesn't matter. And, you know, having that very melting pot kind of perspective, which we don't really like to listen to um just yeah like accepting and embracing those differences that I that I have because while sure while it's just a facet of my being and not the most important thing it does have an effect on my well-being and how I see myself um and so getting to this place where I can truly love the way that I am and and who I am is has certainly been a large part of of this experience particularly when you know you're out you're asking yourself like does anybody want me do I belong anywhere like just having so many of these external voices and factors speaking into into my experience and really challenging um the way that I view myself, it almost is, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, that I wrestle with frequently. I guess, um, you know, this is something that, uh, actually pops into my head. Um, are you familiar with like the doll experiment? There were, um, I want to say it was in the fifties or sixties, but I could be wrong. But, um, they would put in front of little girls, um, you know, a, uh, two baby dolls, one that was black and one that was white oh, and ask yes, them to, yes. you know, to choose one. And, you know, almost every child, if not every child, including the darker skin color girls, you know, the, the black girls and, um, you know, other, um, you know, 
little girls of color all chose the white doll because that was seen as like, you know, the default, the pretty doll, the, you know, the, the more attractive doll. Um, and so, you know, I think this gets to the idea of like representation and how important it is in our media and the things that we consume and the people that we spend time with in being able to recognize um, the goodness of ourselves in the beauty of others. Mm. Um, and so I wonder like, were there, were there groups of um, like other Chinese or Asian kids that you got to spend time with growing up that like, or, or what could there have been more you think that that could have really bolstered your self image and your identity growing up? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, so this just popped into my mind, but there was this day camp that I went to as a kid. Um, it, well, it lasted like a week, but it was, um, oh, what was it called? It was called Heritage Camp. And once a week every year, uh, a bunch of parents who were all parents of adoptees would would come together and they would have like this camp. We would rent out like a middle school in the area and there would just be like several days of like classes and learning about like your culture and uh, they got tons and tons of of students a lot most of them were from china but there were i think 200 cultures represented in that camp wow yeah it was a lot it was a lot going on for a week (laughs) um but i absolutely loved it and looking back on it just being around people with similar experiences and um similar looks like that really has an impact on your development Mm -hmm. particularly you know when you're a little fifth grader who is in in the, the majority of the time like in this culture that you don't really quite match up to sure yeah um obviously i wish that that was something that happened more than once a year because I am Chinese more than once a year. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? So not like I not tokenizing isn't the word, but not just folk dedicating this one little bit of time to like this is when you can be this other part of yourself. This mm-hmm. is when you can really dive into that part of your identity. But the rest of the time like you're with us and you you're assimilated into into white culture um yeah well and how old were you when like the last time you you got to go to that day camp was so you actually age out after middle school <gasps> like the most crucial time i know oh, i gosh. know yeah and and then after that like you can volunteer but yeah you're done as soon as you're done with middle school which like you're just starting to get into like, questions of identity yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Really? it's so crucial like in high school and even in college, like really mm-hmm. the rest of your life. Right. It's yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Oh, well, so much to think on. And you brought up some really important points. And I think, you know, some ways that our system can improve ways that our culture can improve. So thank you for that. 
Um, finally, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Um, and feels like a big last question to wrap it up. How do you think our legal and our social system as a whole can do better to promote family preservation? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you met, well, you mentioned some good points about really allocating our resources and our finances to providing families with what they need, you know, whether that's like food, shelter, um, because when, if someone, as, as you mentioned, if someone is putting out their child for adoption, that's when all the money comes in, like, oh, we have to take care of you now. But that's only so that your child is healthy enough to go to this other family. Ding, ding, ding. But if you have the resources to do that, just to have your child be adopted, why not? Why not take that same mindset and just, you know, provide what that family needs to raise their children and leave it at that. It doesn't have to be with this goal that they're going to end up with this quote unquote better family, but that mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. providing the things that they need, that that's how they're going to become better at being able to take care of their children. Right. Um, I know, you know, Kyle and I have been asked so many times over the years, and for those listening, Kyle's my husband of 11 and a half years. Um, because we've been dealing with infertility, people have, in the pro-life movement, have asked us, well, why don't you just go outside at an abortion clinic with a sign that says, like, you know, we'll, we'll adopt your baby. And I'm like, I'm so uncomfy with that. You should be uncomfy with that. Because if our first response to a woman seeking abortion isn't, what do you need mm-hmm. yeah. to carry this pregnancy confidently and to parent your child confidently. Like, what do you need? How can we accompany you on this path instead of hmm, we'll take your baby? Um, you know, we're, we're doing it wrong. If, if that's not our first question, if our first question isn't, how can we help you? How can we accompany you? What do you need? Um, and I, you know, I've told people, you know, if we had the money and the resources to adopt a child, um, you know, to, to do this infant adoption and our response to that woman in need wasn't, hey, what do you need? Do you need a place to stay? Do you want to come stay with mm-hmm. us? Can we help, you know, like babysit or co-parent your child with you? Can we think of a creative solution that doesn't involve the trauma of lifelong separation? Um, you know, I think it's something that our culture is so tied to, uh, you know, this very black and white idea of the nuclear family uh, that we're unwilling to consider creative solutions that think outside of that binary. Um, and I think that's something that we're living here, you know, by having a found, a chosen family, um, we're four adults all living in the same home and doing life together. It's, it's different. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think when you change to that mindset, you break this you break that cycle of, you know, you have these these poor 
families who are going to remain poor because you're not pouring in those resources and finances. But if you're able, if you're willing to, to be like, you know, I'm going to actually dedicate what I have to pour into this family instead of how can I prepare a place so that I can really just take, but how can I, how can I give? Then you break that cycle of, of poverty because I mean, a lot of these families are poor because no one has really given them what they need. And then it's easy to look at them and say, Oh, you're not well equipped or you don't have what it takes to raise a child. And if you, but if it's because we've not given them that chance and they've never gotten what they needed. So it just is right. It's just this perpetual cycle of, of, poor families not having what they need but then having people who have all the all the money and all the resources stepping in um so we really need to like change that definitely definitely um and i think you know thinking about the fact that i think the law in this country is so set up to um really perpetuate this idolization of the nuclear family um, just continues this trauma. So instead of thinking about creative solutions like kinship care or Hanai, um, you know, models of family where we open up our hearts and our homes to the kids in the neighborhood who, you know, like need a meal or need a place to stay um, without, you know, like forever and always legally revoking the the relationship of their parents to them I think is is really important um and one of the things that you mentioned um really stood out to me um about how you know we need to be resourcing these families instead of perpetuating this cycle um I I was learning about the turnaway study um a little bit more this past week um, which is a study that a lot of um, pro-choice, pro-abortion people will point to and say, you know, oh, you know, after five years, most women don't regret their abortions. Um, but there's another aspect of that study um, that is about, you know, the women who were turned away from having an abortion um, and, you know, what were their lives like after uh, they were denied that abortion. And um, when asked five years later, 96% of those women who had said that they wanted an abortion, but then were turned away, said that they no longer wish that they had, you know, that they no longer wish that they had had one, mm. you know, that they, that they were happy with the child and the life that they had, um, that they were grateful, in fact, many of them, you know, that, that they did not have an abortion. And um, there was this aspect of the study as well, where they looked at the financial situation of, you know, women who had an abortion uh, or women who wish they had an abortion, but then five, you know, five years later had not had the abortion. And though the first two years were rough financially in that, you know, in that time of being pregnant and having a newborn and all of that, after five years, that financial stability level had really evened out with the people who had had the abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know a, you know more or less lined up across across that line and i thought that was really fascinating um to kind of show you know children aren't the impediment necessarily that we think they are in the long term um that yes having children is hard um but our responsibility as a society should be instead you know to resource these families to make sure that they feel confident parenting their children to come alongside them as best as we can um and i i know this might be putting it a spicy way but to kind of see adoption as a last resort um not not abortion as a resort at all of course because abortion is a form of violence um but that our our first choice every time should be offering resources and help to these families um so that we can spare future generations of trauma and we can keep families intact so you know we can preserve these families as much as possible absolutely so sarah i am so grateful uh again for your openness and your willingness to share about your experience and your thoughts your voice and your perspective are always welcome here at the Rehumanized Podcast. So if you ever want to come back and talk about one of the many consistent life ethic issues, you're always welcome. I'm so grateful that you exist. I'm so grateful that you were born. And before we close out, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is it's hard right? This is not an easy conversation. And this is not something that I think that you can reconcile with in a day. This is something that you really need to sit with. Um, And I'm particularly speaking to people who are considering adoption um, to really, 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 really um, ask yourself, why am I doing this? And what is, what's the, what's the outcome? What's the outcome of this? Or how can I maybe, as I'm preparing for adoption, allocate some of my resources to families who are struggling to, to take care of their children and are maybe considering adoption just because they're financially struggling. Um, just keeping your options open um, is, is certainly really important. And for people who are listening that are adopted, it's also hard and it's not, it's, it's not fair. It's not just in a lot of ways. And I'm not here to say that this conversation is going to make it all better for you. Um, Cause I'm sure there's a lot of things that we haven't addressed that um, yeah, I feel like we could talk for days yeah, about this, right, honestly. Right, 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 right. There's just so many different perspectives and so many different different stories. And I hope that we were able to cover some of that and give you some relief that what you go through does matter. And there is trauma in adoption, whether or not people say that there is or if they just tell you to smile and be grateful and you know like that all all that those things that you've heard before like you don't you don't have to just smile and be grateful you can be 
angry, you can be upset, you can be whatever you are feeling about your adoption because it sucks and it's not an ideal situation for anybody involved. Um, and but uh, and and in in addition to that, it is there is hope for things to to change how people have viewed adoption since it was a thing um, that there it can be different and that rehumanize is doing a lot of beautiful work and just including this narrative of adoption has been a real blessing to me in my life and has really made me feel seen and I hope that it makes you feel seen too. Um, yeah, I, I want to throw out there, um, if you are an adoptee or a uh, first parent, um, OG parent, uh, birth mom, whatever, uh, birth dad, maybe, uh, and you want to share some of your story, um, you know, we, we're tentatively working on a project um, to just share some of those stories um, in a way that we hope can help um, really enlighten uh, a lot of folks who are doing pro-life work um, to, to make those voices heard and to share the nuance and the complexity, because I think um, both Sarah and I agree that I think a lot of adoptive parents are coming from a good place, you know, like where um, they want to, to love and share their life and their home with a child. And so if you're an adoptive parent and you're feeling prickly right now, um, just, I get it. Um, I had to definitely like overcome some grief and um, loss in myself when I realized that we weren't going to be pursuing uh, infant adoption when I realized that I didn't feel comfortable with it. Um, that I real when I realized that, you know, our, our first answer should always be resourcing families. Um, but I'm not out here to condemn anyone. I just think that Sarah and I are here to raise the complexity and the nuance and the pain along with the love and the joy and the hope that comes with adoption. Cause I know, you know, if Sarah had been aborted and had not been adopted to her parents in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we would not be the family that we are today. And so I'm grateful for that. Even if I'm also sad, you know, even if I think we both share a sorrow that she couldn't be with her birth family in China. Um, so there's, there's and feelings. Um, I learned from Bluey several years ago that you can, or maybe no, it was, wasn't Bluey. It was Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. I'm sorry, Daniel Tiger's neighborhood that you can have two feelings at the same time. Um, there's a cute little song that goes along with it. I'm not going to sing it because my voice is shot right now, <laughs> but needless to say, if you're existing in multiple feelings right now, that's Okay. And it's good even um, to, to be all up in that. Um, so again, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for making time for this important conversation. And again, if you're an adoptee or a first parent and 
want to reach out to us, um, you can send an email to uh, info at rehumanizeintl.org and we'll be following up sometime in the new year. So one last time, thank you. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Rehumanize podcast. <laughs>